The following podcast contains explicit language. Who, who leaked that to you? Oh, man, I can't tell you that. Uh, what do you mean? I can't tell you that. But Okay, so I'm just going to, what I'm going to do is I'll, I will eliminate everybody in the comms team and we'll start over. So, <laughs> so it's no problem. Okay, the mood showed up a week ago. This is going to get cleaned up very short, okay, because I nailed these guys. This is a major catastrophe for the American country. And Ryan is a paranoid schizophrenic. I'm not. I'm not Steve Bannon. No. I'm not trying to suck my own. <laughs> I'm not trying to build my own brand or shrink the president. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Josh King, author of Offscript, hosting this weekend's show as President Trump embarks on a 17-day vacation in the friendly confines of Bedminster, New Jersey. Forgive me. But 17 days in the middle of August in landlocked Somerset County? Who says the president doesn't sacrifice for his country? Trumpcast is the show about the man who, at that very club in Bedminster, once was heard to say, according to a 6,000-word article in Golf Magazine by Alan Shipnuck, that the White House is, in his words, a real dump. It's a must-read piece for scratch golfers and duffers alike, anyone who wants a deeper understanding of, first, what a talented ball striker the president really is, but also how often he thinks that the time-honored rules of play don't apply to him. Sort of a metaphor for how he views his current job. And forgive me again, but the White House is not a dump. I worked there for nearly six years, and while any 224-year-old resident slash office building needs regular upkeep, it has far better lodgings and much more refined service than most anyone else will ever have access to. I don't really think Donald Trump believes the White House is a dump, but when you're with the boys at the clubhouse grill, it's the kind of jocular thing you say to your cronies with a dose of exaggerated swagger, sort of like the rest of Trump's approach to the English language. Here, for example, is a clip of a leaked recording from President-elect Trump talking to his members at Bedminster last November, just as he was interviewing prospective members of his cabinet. We're going to be interviewing Secretary of State with everybody coming in. And we're going to have, and I don't know if you want to come around, but if you want, it's going to be unbelievable. It's going to be an unbelievable day. So you might want to come along. And it's, going to be a nice it's been a bad week for revealed conversations. The Washington Post got a hold of a transcript of Trump's calls with Mexican President Enrique Peña Nieto an Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, in one, whining that he needed Peña Nieto to stop saying Mexico wouldn't pay for the wall, and in the other, complaining about the raw deal he got by having to honor a deal made by the Obama administration to vet the background of refugees that might come to this country. And then there was the mooch, Anthony Scaramucci, who lost his job as White House Communications Director after an ill-considered late-night phone call to The New Yorker's Ryan Lisa, where someone forgot to set the ground rules before the profanity started flying. The New Yorker posted parts of the audio of that conversation this week. Let's take a quick lesson. What he's going to do is, oh, maybe Bill Shine's coming. So let me leak thing and see if I can block these people the way I block Scaramucci for six months. What else happened? The chief of staff lost his job. Several national security staffers lost their jobs. 
news came out that the president railed against the commanding general of U.S. forces in Afghanistan and wanted him to lose his job. And, oh yeah, special counsel Robert Mueller impaneled a grand jury as part of his ongoing investigation, meaning everyone who's lawyered up is going to have to lawyer up even more. Everyone needs a vacation, and I don't begrudge the president his. When the skinny repeal of Obamacare fell apart last week, for many it seemed like the last straw in their view of a town sharply divided along partisan lines. As John McCain said when he made his heroic return to the well of the Senate, We're getting nothing done, my friends. We're getting nothing done. Well, fear not, my friends. As you head off on your own holidays, know that bipartisanship is not dead. It's just a little skinnied down. But more flesh is being added thanks to the problem solvers. 43 members of the House of Representatives split evenly between both parties that is working day and night on stabilizing the deteriorating individual health insurance market. My friend Josh Gottheimer, a freshman Democratic congressman from the 5th District of New Jersey, is making a big impact in his first term by working alongside Republican Congressman Tom Reed of New York and their colleagues to give us all hope that, when the House returns from its recess, a major problem might actually be solved. Congressman Gottheimer will join us on the Trumpcast right after the break. Hey, Trumpcast listeners, Jason here with one more message before we start today's show. Are you a Slate Plus member yet? If not, why not? With Slate Plus, you could get ad-free podcasts and bonus segments of the show. And on today's bonus segment, you can hear me chat with Steve Laddick. He's a professor of law over at the University of Texas and the co-editor-in-chief of the Just Security blog. We'll be chatting about Bob Mueller and the grand jury that he has impaneled in Washington. To join Slate Plus, go to slate.com slash trumpcastplus. That's slate.com slash trumpcastplus. Now let's get to the show. I met Josh Gottheimer when we worked together in the Clinton administration way back when, but he's still only 42 years old. At age 16, he was a Senate page for New Jersey's Frank Lautenberg and went on to graduate from UPenn and Harvard Law School. After his White House service, he worked in the private sector for Ford Motor and Microsoft and last year unseated seven-term Congressman Scott Garrett to win a seat in the House representing New Jersey's 5th District. He joins me on the phone from Jerusalem, where he's on a trip working with colleagues on Middle East issues. A note as we begin, our line started out a bit fuzzy in the first few minutes, but cleaned up pretty quick. Congressman, welcome to the program. Thanks, Josh. Good to be here. First, you can't call me Congressman. That's my only request. You know, I was I was wrestling with that. Is it going to be Congressman or Josh I'll show, but I'm much happier with Josh, so we'll go with that. Okay, good. Okay. First, I have to ask, Josh, what are you doing in Israel? Is this a remake of You Don't Mess with the Zohan, a, the classic 2008 Adam Sandler flick? Well, I, I'm here with a uh, group that is, uh, there's about 20 new members of Congress, freshmen, and there's a trip that goes every other year group, and uh, it is really to dig into every aspect of uh, policy here and, and, and stress the vital, uh, important relationship that we have with Israel, and uh, not just for Israel's security and their importance in the region, but of course for America's security at home. Today I was at the Western Wall 
So it, it's a, it's an enormous honor, and it has been nonstop. So uh, I'm ready to get to sleep. And if you are a problem solver, uh, there's no lack of problems to solve over there. But looking toward the United States, you are the co-chairman of the Problem Solvers, one of 43 House members evenly split between both parties and focused on figuring out how we can all get along and where we can get some things done. Where did the idea come from for Problem Solvers? So interestingly, the caucus, uh, which is a group of members, and, and there are various caucuses in Congress, where uh, people come together uh, around certain topics. The Problem Solvers Caucus had existed, uh, but not in the form that's in now. And um, my colleague, Tom Reed, and I, early in this Congress, got together and said we should think of changing the caucus to be less of a place where people just get together and talk, the Democrats and Republicans get together and talk, and, uh, and, and lean more toward action around specific issues. And we changed the bylaws to make it more about substance and, and coming together around and trying to find common ground around certain topics. And the bylaws say now that one, when we get to 51% of Democrats and 51% Republicans and 75% overall around an issue, that we'll take the position and vote in the block. Think about the Freedom Caucus and the, the influence they're having on the, on the far right and, and the impact on Congress. Think about actually of a, a driving force in the middle to find a common sense middle. And the second change we did was that we said you had to pay dues. Uh, so you had to put a few dollars up to show up and then so you can actually um, operate as a proper caucus. And then three, we said that you would not, everyone agreed not to campaign in the districts against anybody else who's in the caucus. And that's a tough one because obviously, you know, there's politics to do, but but really, it's very hard to build trusting relationships and work on top and work on substantive issues with people if you can't trust them and you think they're coming after you. Uh, but I'm curious, Josh, is Tom Reed someone that you knew prior to being elected? And if not, like what happens in January, February, when you look at a guy who's across uh, the aisle from you and say, hey, you know, we, we agree on more than we disagree. Can we, can we band together? Is he a guy who you instantly bonded with and said this could be a real friend? You know, yes, actually, you know, we went out, and uh, and then we, we had these initial meetings, people put us together, and I met with some of the people who had been involved in the caucus before, and I reached out to colleagues on my side, and Tom did the same on his side, and we just started getting together. It takes a little while, you have to have open conversations, and you've got to get to the point where you trust each other, but you know, there's plenty Tom and I don't agree on, uh, but the more I spend time with them, there's plenty I realize we can find areas where we do agree. And, and where we can get things done. And you start just like anything, Joshua. You started developing a friendship. And, uh, and, and he's been, you know, he's given me a lot of advice on various things. You know, I'm a new member of Congress. He's been around a few, few sessions. So he, you know, explains certain things to me or where, where, where problems have happened in the past or where things have, haven't worked in the past. And then we've got plenty of really smart people on, on Democrats who I've spent a lot of time with also who, who are part of the caucus and have been involved and trying to find common ground in the past. And so instead of just saying no to things, and by the way, there's plenty of things that I'm fighting against and, and I disagree with, but instead of just saying no to, to everything on coming out of the agenda from the White House, you're trying to find places where you can get things done. And for back home, which is, you know, I'm from Northern New Jersey, and we have plenty of work to do and things to deal with when it comes to getting our taxes down and and fixing our roads and bridges and tunnels. And so there are areas where we have to get things done and we can't afford just to obstruct. So, Josh, after uh, the 
Senate bill fell apart and McCain had his uh, dramatic thumbs down in the well of the Senate. Meanwhile, what was happening for the with the problem solvers uh, in the conference room where you were gathering, scarfing down tacos and beer in search of a compromise? Well, you know, we uh, were going back and forth, and it was unclear if we could get there. Leading up the sort of the days leading into it, you know, there was so much going on. If you remember in the Senate, and it was unclear where things were going with what they were pushing, which was a piece of legislation that many of us, including Republicans, thought was not the way to actually solve the immediate problem and deal with this this collapsing marketplace. Um, you know, if you want, the goal here was to stabilize the marketplace, and and with the uncertainty, we that we knew that was a real problem. So when McCain voted no that night. Well, I guess it was early in the morning on that Friday morning, our emails started going off. Tom Reed and Tom, he had the same experience. Everyone saying, hey, you guys got to get back together. We got to get back together tomorrow morning. And that morning was a Friday and we were all flying out uh, back home right after votes. And votes, I think, were at 10 o'clock in the morning. So we quickly sent a note to everybody saying, hey, we're going to gather if you can make it, expecting probably just a couple people to show up, saying, looks like this could be an opportune moment to try to see if we can find an agreement. So we sent an email out and 30, about 35 members of Congress showed up of the 43, wow. uh, which was incredible. Literally within hour notice, or an hour and a half notice into a room, I think we we're in the Longworth building, into a conference room. We all got together and we were there for an hour and a half just talking about what we could agree on and going back and forth about little tweaks in the language and we didn't vote there, but it was clear that we had enough. You know, you've got to get to seven members. Seventy-five percent of this group has to agree, yeah. including at least 51 percent of both sides. So that's a high bar. And we, uh, Tom and I spent the weekend talking to folks and, and having them vote. And by, I think it was by very, very late Sunday night, early Monday morning, we had our last vote that we needed to cross the threshold. And, uh, and, and that was it. We put the news out, and, and it's, you know, it's been a bit of a whirlwind this week. Mostly not just because people have been very interested in what we're doing from a you know press perspective, but we've been speaking to senators and governors and trying to get them to move along too. And we're and heard very good feedback from everyone from Senator Schumer to uh, Senator Alexander and Senator Collins, and, and it's really been Senator Manchin very very positive feedback of hey they handed out handed our plan out they had all these meetings that they were having on health care handed our plan out and I'm not. Who knows if this is going to be this proposal will be what takes what, what the ultimate product looks like. But what's important is that it, uh, I'm hoping to we're, it looks like it's a movement in the right direction. And listen, it's not always easy. You get even on this, there are things in there that I don't love, right? But it's but you got to build a consensus. You got to get got to get there, and so it means you've got to agree to some things that aren't necessarily perfect. And you know, I'm getting yelled at by by folks on my side, and Tom's getting yelled at by folks on his side about it. Uh, because it's not perfect, but but um, it's it's gonna. I believe with the cost sharing reduction payments, which we say should be should be mandatory and when not in the whim of the of the White House, um, and and we create a dedicated stability fund to states to help them reduce premiums and limit losses for for coverage, especially those with pre-existing conditions. You know the costs that are so high and and making premiums go up so much. Things like that are are very very important, and they will stabilize the marketplace and and really fix Obamacare and not destroy Obamacare. And, and, you know, those of us who think the ACA should be fixed, not destroyed, because it's too important, this is a very, in my opinion, was a, a very good move in that direction. So let's solve a couple of the problems then that the problem solvers try to address. A lot of small business owners, Josh, might have valid concerns about Obamacare. They're 
entrepreneurs with a dream, but if they have just 50 employees, they need to provide health insurance for their people. What kind of relief have you built in for them? Well, you know, we've, we have, uh, as part of this, we adjust the employer mandate to raise it from businesses uh, from with 50 employees to 500 employees. And, you know, a lot, you hear from a lot of small businesses, of course, that between the paperwork and, and, uh, setting, setting up, uh, up these, uh, the, the, uh, insurance compliance on their end is really onerous. My concern was making sure that people still get coverage. And what, we, what all the studies show is that 90% of people, of employers, small businesses before the ACA was in effect offered healthcare and that that will continue afterwards even with this kind of change, because it, you, you know, people expect certain things from their employers and, and the coverage will continue. But here's the good news. If for some reason a small business doesn't want to provide coverage, we will now have an individual marketplace where they can get coverage and, it'll be, and there'll be subsidies for it. So that's very important, right? Before there was no backstop and now there is a backstop. And, and that's a, so that's a huge difference. And, and it's not, again, as I said, you, you don't get everything you want. But I spoke to the experts on our side about this, those who were involved with, with building the ACA, and, and they really and were involved in Medicaid and Medicare and building all these and making sure that these programs are effective and work, and they felt very good about this provision. So then focusing on lowering medical care costs, Josh, you've advocated repealing the 2.3% medical device tax, but also not adding to the budget deficit. How, do the, how does that math work? So we uh, have a full pay-for program in this, so where you actually figure out, we did the math and we figured out the costs and looked at items that we're going to have to uh, address to make sure that there were, uh, that it's paid for. We came up with a list um, of options of all different permutations to get there. Not everybody around the table agreed with every single one of them, but there are different ones that people thought they could agree with, and that would cover including repealing the medical device tax which uh, I'll tell you from the, the device manufacturers in, in my district and my state have made pretty clear that it's holding back, uh, holding back R&D and holding back economic growth and, um, and it was being passed on to consumers. And so we, we moved to repeal that. Again, this was a, a part of the, the consensus building. So the day before McCain did that dramatic thumbs down, you know, he returned to the well of the Senate from Arizona and uh, he made quite an impassioned speech. He said, merely preventing your political opponents from doing what they want isn't the most inspiring work. There's a greater satisfaction respecting our differences, but not letting them prevent agreements that don't require abandonment of core principles. Now, Josh, in, earlier in your career, you worked as a page for Senator Frank Lautenberg. He was a partisan fighter, but he also knew how to reach across the aisle. As you get back from Israel and think about sort of the tidal wave of, of good feeling that you've had uh, over the past few weeks of support for the problem solvers and what you're doing on this specific issue, how what what actually would have to happen for you to uh, recruit and raise your ranks from 43 members? You know, we're, I, I have, we've gotten a lot of calls from a lot of members who would love to join. And, you know, for us, what's most important is that people who are interested are serious about it and willing to actually work together in the right way and show up and work hard, you know, and, and I think that's the what we ask and, and people taking it seriously. And you've got to be willing when we get to that 75% to, to vote together. And I'm also hoping that we, we move on to, you know, we get this challenge done and we, we see it through and then we've got to deal with tax reform. We've got to get infrastructure done and we've got, uh, we've got the debt ceiling ahead of us. And so we've got a lot of challenges ahead, but they're not easy ones, but, 
but we took on a tough one here and, and somehow got somewhere. As we talked about earlier, uh, you live and work in the 5th District. Uh, it's a swing district. Your neighbor is the 7th CD where President Trump, I think, is going to be spending at least the next two weeks in Bedminster. With your pedigree from the prior, from the Clinton administration, how thin is the line that you need to walk in criticizing the White House when he won your district 49 to 48 last time around? It's a really good question. You know, I don't spend much time, again, that's that national political uh, line that I think is important. Uh, if there are issues I disagree with that affect my district at home and people at home and they're going to hurt us, I'm going to talk out about it. If we're not being true to the character of who, our, of who we are as a country that affects our constituents, whether it's certain policies he's put out very early on, which I completely disagree with on, on who's allowed to be here and who's not. I'm not talking about having a, a safe borders. I'm talking about how uh, you know, we, we treat people and, we, and, and abandoning our character. I'm going to speak out. But, you know, I'm, I'm going to look for, I'm really focused on looking for places where we can get to yes. And because we've got to, as I mentioned, we, we, we can't ignore our infrastructure problem. We've got to deal with our tax problem. There are issues that I'm going to spend a lot of my time on that are just about helping uh, the 5th District. And, and most of the time, you're not going to hear me talk about party politics when I do it, because I just think that that's not relevant. And fixing a road is not a Democrat or Republican issue. So... I'm just going to try to do a good job, spend as much time as possible being responsive to people, vets, or seniors have a Social Security problem or Medicare problem. To me, it's it's being around, helping businesses grow. Uh, it's making sure our water's clean and doing the right things and then let the politics take care of themselves. Because I think if you do a good job, that's what people want you to do. Before I let you go, Josh, is that we, we talked about at the top of the show, you are in Jerusalem. In May, along with Congressman Brian Mast of Florida, uh, you authored the bipartisan U.S.-Israel Joint Missile Defense Act to further develop the Arrow Missile System to advance America's interests in the region. How is your trip going in relation to that work, and what are some of the things you learned that you didn't know before you stepped foot there? Well, I'm going to spend time in the—I've been here a uh, a little over a day or so, um, so I will be spending— time in the coming days on the national security front here. Uh, we have meetings set up. I'm very, I'm on the terrorist and illicit financing subcommittee of the financial services committee. So I spend a lot of time on, on following the, the dollars and where the money's moving on funding terrorism, Hezbollah, Hamas, ISIS. And so that's a, a, a big reason why I wanted to make this trip to understand um, and see firsthand how the money's moving. And of course, also, as you pointed out, the missile defense systems where there are just thousands of missiles being developed and a lot of smart missile technology um, that threatens uh, our key ally here in the region, is also a partner and a security partner of ours and the, the democracy in the region um, uh, and, and someone who is and a, a nation that's very important to keeping the stability of a, a very uh, a tenuous part of the world right now with ISIS and Syria and um, the Caliphate and, and Iran, which I, I have, I, I believe it is a, a very big concern, has been a concern, and we have to keep a watchful eye on. You hear a lot, we've heard a lot in our briefings today about Iran. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of threats and Israel is the size of, about the size of my state, believe it or not, uh, of New Jersey. And it's, and when you look at it on a map, you just can't believe it, how, what kind of role it has to play given its size. Um, so I'm, I'm eager in the days ahead to dig in deeper and more briefings. We have more tomorrow, of course, and, uh, I, I continue to learn a lot and, and hopefully what I learn will inform my work when I get home. I've been speaking with Representative Josh Gottheimer of New Jersey's 5th District. He's co-chairman, along with Tom Reed of New York, of the Problem Solvers, 
a caucus of 43 Republicans and Democrats committed to actually getting things done in Washington. Josh, thanks for joining me on the show. Josh, great to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Travel safe. Take care, man. Bye-bye. Sometimes I wanted to win more for the sake of winning than to achieve a contested policy. That's it for today's show. In these long, hot days of August, we tried to give you some reason for hope for what Washington can be when we all pivot toward the middle. Incremental progress, compromises that each side criticize but also accept. Make ourselves open to compromise and try to find some common ground. What do you think? Just plain muddling through to chip away at problems and keep our enemies from doing their worst isn't glamorous or exciting. Tweet at us at RealTrumpCast to give us your thoughts. That's at RealTrumpCast. And you can find me on Twitter at Polyoptics. I know, it's a weird word, but I made it up. TrumpCast is produced by the irrepressible Jason DeLeon. I'm Josh King. Thanks for listening to TrumpCast. It doesn't feel like a political triumph, but it's usually the most we can expect from our system of government, operating in a country as diverse and quarrelsome and free as ours.